Um, I just want very briefly to introduce Richie, who's um, Professor of German here, who's come all the way from uh, just down the road. Um, <laughs> um, and his interests, as many of you will know, are just amazingly uh, wide-ranging and um, erudite. He's a, he's a wonderfully uh, wide-ranging and uh, sort of perceptive and uh, exploratory uh, scholar and critic. Um, prominent among the interests, perhaps, are Kafka, Nietzsche, Thomas Mann. Um, and I also, among the many publications, want to point to a really great uh, comparative book, um, Mock Epic Poetry from Pope to Heine, which um, came out a few years ago, I think, in 2009. So um, today, Richie's going to tell us about Belt uh, Literature before Goethe. Matthew, thank you very much for your kind words. Thank you to all of you for coming here, and thank you above all to Matthew and Eleanor for inviting me. As I look round, I can see an amazing array of friends and acquaintances of these vintages, both ancient and modern, and it's a great pleasure and privilege to address you. Now, there's a handout, which I hope you all have. You can see that my talk falls into five parts, so you'll see when I'm approaching the end. Most of the rest of the handout is taken up with a chronology, which starts in the remote era when the Sanskrit epics were composed and goes up to 1827. My talk will begin and end in 1827, and it begins on the 31st of January, 1827, when Goethe is reported by his secretary Eckermann as saying national literature no longer means much, the era of world literature is at hand. And I want to pause over this famous statement and look at it in its immediate and wider context. First, how sure can we be that Goethe actually said it? How Eckermann composed his record of Goethe's conversations is far from clear. He wasn't like Boswell, who sometimes annoyed Johnson by going to the other side of the room to write down something that Johnson had just said. It seems that Eckermann often wrote down in his diary the key words of a conversation, sometimes a fuller, connected summary, soon after it has occurred, and then use his excellent powers of memory to reconstruct the conversation in full. Sometimes the reconstruction took place long after the event. For example, the conversation of the 11th of March, 1828, which stretches over 10 pages, was written down 14 years later on the basis of four words that Eckermann had jotted down at the time. The words being productivity, genius, Napoleon, Prussia. <laughs> However, Eckermann was immersed in Goethe's mode of thought and speech. Goethe's daughter-in-law and many others testified to the amazing accuracy with which Eckermann had reproduced Goethe's distinctive manner of speaking. Occasionally, the subjects of conversations are recorded also in Goethe's diary, providing a check on Eckermann's account. So, we can be sure that Eckermann got it roughly right but we can't be sure that he ever reproduced Goethe's exact words, as he wasn't trying to interpret an Eckermann conversation too minutely. Bearing this proviso in mind, we find that at dinner on the 31st of January, 1827, Goethe reported that he'd been reading a Chinese novel. This appears to, be, to have been an English translation entitled Chinese Courtship in Verse, of a novel belonging to the genre of romances involving a scholar and a beautiful girl, which was popular in the early Qing period 
That is the late 17th century. But Goethe's account of it seem, seems to mix it up with another novel, which you may have read as early as 1796, and which should be published in English in 1761 under the title, I apologise for my pronunciation, How Kyu Choan, or The Pleasing History. And also the third novel, called, called Yu Kiao Li, of which Goethe had recently seen the French translation reviewed, which he obtained and read a few months later. We can't now tell whether it was Goethe or Eckermann who conflated the three novels. At all events, Goethe comments on the extreme decency and restraint um, shown by the lovers in the Chinese Romance and draws a surprising contrast with the songs of Pierre-Jean de Béranger, which, which he's just been reading too, which he finds strikingly immoral. Goethe then reflects that poetry is the common possession of humanity, ein Gemeingut der Menschheit, and that since poetry is so widespread, no poet is entitled to think himself exceptional. By the same token, one should not confine oneself to the poetry of one's own language, as Goethe says the Germans do in what he calls their pedantic conceit. We might remember at this point that Goethe intensely disliked the atmosphere of German nationalism that grew up with the defeat of Napoleon, and his own volume of orientalizing poetry, the Westöstliche Divan, is presented as an escape from this setting. But, Goethe goes on to say, in our enthusiasm for, for foreign literature, we mustn't concentrate on any one body of writing, be it Chinese fiction, or Serbian ballads, or Calderon, or the Nibelungenlied, and elevate it into an absolute standard. We already have a standard of perfection, namely ancient Greek literature, to which we must always return. Everything else must be treated historically. Now, in these remarks, which I've hastily paraphrased, Goethe combines, a little uneasily, two ways of thinking about world, lit world literature. He still declares his allegiance to the classical heritage, transmitted ultimately from the Greeks. Their achievement, especially in epic and drama, can never be surpassed and provides a timeless standard by which to judge all these productions. In his Exaltation of the Greeks, Goethe seems to illustrate the German Greekophilia, which has famously been labelled the tyranny of Greece over Germany. It accompanied the institutionalisation of classical studies at German universities and their extension into the Prussian school system by Wilhelm von Humboldt. However, in fairness to Goethe, he made it clear in the essay Antique und Moderne of 1818 that for him, ancient and modern were not antitheses. Modern artists had no need to imitate Greek forms. The important thing was to maintain in their art the qualities, the serenity and ease which the Greeks showed to perfection. He includes, jeder sei auf seine Art ein Grieche, aber er seis. Everyone should be a Greek in his own way, but he should be one. Alongside the normative conception of the classical heritage, however, there is another more relativist conception, which I'll call the <coughs> imaginary museum. Borrowing the term from André Malraux, with his Le Musée Imaginaire de la Sculpture Mondiale. One could imagine a, a, museum, a museum of world sculpture, in which classical nudes would stand beside Benin bronzes 
and Chinese terracotta soldiers. But in modern museums, you no longer gape at the exhibits through a glass panel. Museums are now interactive. Whether by stimulating curiosity, that makes you run eagerly from one exhibit to another, or by allowing hands-on contact with the artefacts on display. In experiencing other cultures, through literature or other media, our understanding of them affects our understanding of ourselves. It may, of course, reinforce our own prejudices. Thus, Ronald Inden, in Imagining India, argues that Europeans have imagined India as spiritual in order to, to congratulate themselves on their own down-to-earth practicality. But besides bolstering prejudices, contact with world literature may help to undermine them. Certainly it involves familiar stereotypes, but stereotyping is unavoidable as an initial step toward developing a more informed and subtle understanding of the other. I come on now to part two, dismantling the classical heritage. In order for world literature to be conceived, it is necessary for the normative authority of the classical heritage to be dismantled. And in what follows, I'll discuss some episodes of literary history in which interest extended to include non-European literature. I won't try to survey the history of comparative literature, of which one can find useful accounts by René Velek, Robert Mayo, and others. I'll confine myself to what we call imaginative literature, although when Western scholars began to find out about Asian writings, they were naturally interested chiefly in, religi in religious and historical texts, such as the Koran and the Zend Avesta. The Koran was translated into Latin as early as 18, uh, 1143, into French in 1647, and into English by George Sale, in 1734. Sale's translation was the basis for the first German version, which appeared in 1746. Anquetil Duperon spent seven years in India in the 1750s, and though unable to obtain any Hindu texts, was supplied by Parsi priests with a manuscript of the Iranian Zend Avesta. His translation appeared in 1771, and was soon afterwards translated into German. This illustrates the difficulty of obtaining original texts, let alone reliable translations. The Asian literary text that was well known in the West was, of course, the Arabian Nights. Initially, in a very free translation by Antoine Galland, the Mille Une Nuit, published in 12 volumes between 1704 and 1717. In the Arab world, however, According to Robert Irwin, the Arabian Nights were, and still are, often held in low esteem, and we wonder at our fondness for them. And so, an essential prelude to the study of world literature was the quarrel of the ancients and the moderns, in which the supreme authority of the ancients was challenged. This controversy began in early 17th century Italy, and an early landmark was the essay on Homer by Alessandro Tassoni, published in his Pensieri Diversi of 1620. Pouring scorn on the idea that Homer was a philosopher, Tassoni goes through the Iliad book by book, finding all sorts of incoherencies and absurdities. The emblematic moment of the quarrel, however, 
was the occasion on the 27th of January 1687 when Charles Perrault read aloud his poem Le Siècle de Louis le Grand to the French Academy. Despite professing boundless respect for Homer, he felt that Homer would have written much better poems if he'd lived in 17th century France. <laughs> he'd have known how to avoid tedious allegories and descriptions, such as the shield of Achilles, and his heroes would have been better behaved. <laughs> the barbarity of Homer's heroes, a criticism already made in the ancient world by Socrates, with reference to, Achi to Achilles, was a standard element in the neoclassical critique of Homer, along with their plebeian manners, in calling each other rude names and in cooking their own meals instead of getting their servants to do it. <laughs> More generally, of course, the proponents of the modern side in the quarrel pointed out that the ancients were ignorant of modern science and also of Christianity, and that their imaginary gods behaved in an absurd, undignified and immoral way. All these criticisms are made by Vico in the Scienza Nuova, of which the first version was published in 1725. He points out the barbarity of Achilles in leaving Hector's corpse unburied, dragging it round the walls of Troy, and threatening to cut off Priam's head when the defeated king asks for the burial of his son's body. He quotes the insults which the gods and the Greek kings throw at each other, and he denounces the stupidity shown by Agamemnon in antagonising Achilles in a quarrel over a slave girl. Vico notes these things, however, not in order to disparage Homer, but to debunk the view that Homer was a sublime philosopher. He shows that Homer actually represents the manners of an early heroic age, when heroes had violent tempers and lively imaginations. He thus anticipates the change of taste, whereby, later in the century, Homer's apparent vulgarity would be revalued as primitive simplicity and naturalness. The key intervention here was by Thomas Blackwell, professor of Greek at Aberdeen University, in his inquiry into the life and writings of Homer, 1735. But the dislodgement of Homer from his position as supreme poet is fully accomplished by Voltaire in his essay on epic poetry, first published in English in 1727. And the importance of Voltaire's move is not just that he disparages Homer, but he does so by comparison with a text in a, on a non-European subject, within an essay that has, rightly in my view, been called an essential step in the development of the idea of world literature. Voltaire published his essay on epic poetry during his residence in England in the late 1720s. In 1733, he issued a French version, heavily revised, less outspoken than the original, and much nastier about Milton. Both versions discuss eight epic poems written in six languages, none of them French. In Voltaire's view, French literature seriously lacked an epic poet. The only pretender to this title, Jean Chapelain, was a byword for tedium. Voltaire intended to fill this gap by writing his Henriade, an account of the exploits of Henry IV modelled on the Indeed. 
in the essay, he deals with Homer, Virgil, Lucan, Tasso, Frisino, Camuanche, Milton, and the Spanish poet Alonso de Ercia e, e, e Zuniga, author of the Araucana, which deals with the war waged by the Spaniards against the native inhabitants of Chile. In the section on Ercia, Voltaire undertakes a striking comparison between a passage from his Araucana and a similar passage from the Iliad. Agamemnon and Achilles, quarrelling over the slave girl Briseis, are reconciled by Nestor. And the Araucanian chiefs, disputing who shall lead the resistance to the Spaniards, are reconciled by the wise old Colo Colo. As Voltaire describes, Colo Colo judiciously appeases the rivalries among the chiefs by flattering their vanity and appealing to their patriotism and successfully proposes an inoffensive means of selecting a leader. Nestor, by contrast, tells the Greeks that they are inferior to their ancestors and tells Agamemnon that Achilles is a greater warrior than he is. Not surprisingly, therefore, Nestor's eloquence is entirely ineffectual. This enables Voltaire to poke fun at what is called, in the English version, the haughty talkativeness of Nestor, and in the French version, le babil, le babil uh, 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 présentueux et impoli de Nestor. Alongside these criticisms of Homer, his position as the supreme poet and progenitor of subsequent literature was being undermined in other ways. There was, first of all, the question whether Homer ever existed. Was it not more likely that the two Homeric epics had been assembled from a number of shorter narratives composed by various hands? This idea was proposed independently by Perrault and others in France, by the combative classicist Richard Bentley in England, and in Italy by Vico, who argues that the true Homer is not an individual but a body of poetry recited by blind singers who wandered about the marketplaces of Greece and stitched together in pre-classical Athens to make two poems which Vico finds strikingly, dif strikingly different in character. However, Vico received little attention in his own time. The case for the disunity of the Homeric poems was finally made most authoritatively and influentially near the end of the century by Friedrich August Wolf, who argued, following others, that Homer could not write, for books and letters are never mentioned in his poems, and pointed out, too, the poems contain awkward linking passages whose diction differs from Homer's norm. Now, Wolf's account of Homer was very important for Goethe, but that would take me too far afield. I want to get on to my third part, primitive poetry. If the Homeric poems were originally composed by a number of oral poets, these poets could be imagined as similar to the bards who composed and performed poetry in ancient Germanic and Celtic Europe. Homer became first cousin to Ossian and the ancient Scandinavian skalds. Instead of being the pinnacle of classical learning, the Homeric epics became the exemplar primitive poetry. In this light, Homer's faults could be excused and reinterpreted. The fury of Achilles, the fear and greed shown by Agamemnon, were the natural emotions displayed freely by people who had not yet acquired 
the inhibitions of civilized society. And instead of epics, the genre which in the Renaissance and long afterwards was considered the highest form of poetry, the Homeric poems could be imagined as very similar to ballads, a despised form of popular poetry that was transmitted orally and circulated in the form of cheap prints. But the ballad too was being revalued. It was a form of poetry that could reconnect us with the simpler and more colourful manners of past times and with our own national history. It was also a genre that was international. Ballads were recorded in many countries and the basic plots crossed over national frontiers. W.J. Entwistle, who some 60 years ago was Professor of Spanish in this university, in his book European Balladry, gives examples such as the Ballad of Tannhäuser, which originated somewhere in southern Germany in the 15th century and spread in one direction nor northwards to Denmark, in another westwards to Flanders. The process of transmission may even extend beyond Europe. Entwistle notes the similarity between the French ballad of the warrior maiden and the Chinese folk poem about Mulan, the girl recently made famous by Disney, who took her old father's place in the army and fought as a soldier for 12 years. The most prominent ballad collector of the mid-18th century, Thomas Percy, also deserves credit as a pioneer in the appreciation of world lit literature. He's best known for his ballad collection, The Relics of Ancient English Poetry, which first appeared in 1765. It's less well known that he was also responsible for the publication of the first Chinese novel to appear in Europe. This was The Pleasing History, which Goethe probably read in 1796. The original was partly translated into English as a language learning exercise by one James Wilkinson, an employee of the East India Company, who showed it to Percy, together with the remainder of the text, which somebody else had translated into Portuguese. Percy edited the text, translating the Portuguese part into English himself, and had it published the well-known publisher Robert Dodsley, in an edition supplemented by information about China, taken from the well-known book by Pierre Duald. This English version then provided the basis for translations into French, German and Dutch. In addition, Percy translated medieval poems from Spanish and also from Icelandic and tried, albeit with little success, to find out from a correspondent in Jamaica about native Caribbean and North American poetry. When his Icelandic poems were published as five pieces of, ru of runic poetry, translated from the Icelandic language in 1763, Percy made a point of including the original texts so that he should not be accused of fabricating his poems as James Macpherson had been in the case of Ossian. The ballad revival was thus one form of literary inquiry which led beyond one's native country and could lead beyond Europe. It also helped to debunk the supreme authority of Greek literature. The ballad singer Homer was placed alongside Ossian, as in Johann Gottfried Herder's Auszug aus einem Briefwechsel über Ossian und die Lieder alter Völker, extracts from exchange of letters on Ossian and the songs of ancient nations. <coughs> Herder quotes also from English and Scottish ballads 
and from songs from Lapland and Latvia. It is an anthology of folk poetry, published initially as Volkslieder in 1778, and later as Stimmen der Völker in Liedern, Voices of the Nations in Songs, 1807. He includes songs and ballads from many parts of Europe, from Spain to Estonia, and even a song from Peru, addressed to the rain goddess, which he'd found in a book of travels. In his essay on Shakespeare, published alongside the Ossian essay, Hedder attacked the authority conferred on Aristotle's poetics and hence on Greek drama by neoclassical critics. He pointed out that Greek drama arose under one set of conditions, Shakespearean drama under a quite different set, and neither could claim authority, although by emphasising Shakespeare's closeness to nature and universal humanity, he's clearly weighing down the scales in favour of Shakespeare. Okay, I'm now three-fifths of the way through, and I come to biblical poetry. So far, non-European literature has made a small-scale small and cautious entry into European consciousness, but Christian Europe already had access to non-European literature in the form of the Bible. The New Testament was sacrosanct. Nobody seems to have anticipated Frank Kermode's attempt to read the Gospels with the help of narratology, but the poetic qualities of the Old Testament found appreciation and analysis in the lectures given by Robert Louth as Professor of Poetry at Oxford, published in Latin in 1753. Professor of Poetry gave the lectures in Latin down to Matthew Arnold, who was the first to give the lectures in English, and published in English translation in 1787. Louth recognised three modes in the style of the Old Testament, which he was the first to identify. The figurative, including imagery, allegory, comparison and personification. The device, the sententious, which employed the device of parallelism, which he was the first to identify, and the sublime. Following the ancient critic known as Longinus, Louth understands the sublime as, I quote, that form of composition, whichever it be, whatever it be, which strikes and overpowers the mind, which excites the passions, which expresses ideas at once with perspicuity and elevation. Again, like Longinus, he finds an exceptionally impressive example in the words of Genesis, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Louth's approach to the Old Testament was adopted in Germany by Herder, and combined with Herder's intense interest in primitive poetry. In the early chapters of Genesis, Herder recognised poetry that was primitive, not in the sense of being rough, crude or unpolished, but in being natural, expressing the spontaneous feelings of people whose emotions had not yet been sickly all with a pale cast of thought or disturbed by intellectual speculation. Although Herder accepted the still prevailing assumption that the Pentateuch was the work of Moses, he thought the opening of Genesis came from an earlier period because it showed no signs of Egyptian or Babylonian cosmology. Herod deplores misreadings of Genesis, whether historical, theological or theosophical. If you look for a connected narrative, he says, you'll simplify incoherence. 
If you seek material to support theological dogma, you entirely miss the lofty simplicity of the text. If, like a theosophist, you look for access to the mind of God, you're asking the impossible. And if, like the exponents of physical theology, you try to accommodate Genesis to Newtonian science, you simply make yourself ridiculous. The early books of Genesis, he says, are a sublime poem, ein episch-historisches Gedicht. To appreciate it, you have to find your way back into the imaginative outlook of the, er of the early Orientals. Herder's word is Morganlander. In those spacious desert landscapes, you have to imagine what sunrise must, sunrise must have felt like in the desert. Genesis is a poetic evocation of dawn. A painting of dawn, Herder says, a picture of day as it begins. Behold, that explains everything. Herder thus has a key role in developing what might be called the imaginary museum, the view of world literature, in which no nation is uniquely privileged. This may surprise people who still think of Herder as a major prophet of nationalism. Although some older accounts of nationalism portray him in this way, Herder is in fact one of the greatest exponents of Enlightenment cosmopolitanism. Having a strongly empirical cast of mind and regarding all general categories as reductive, Herder sets store by the distinctive, local and particular character of individual cultures for which he constantly uses the word national. A generation later, in his addresses to the German nation, delivered in French-occupied Prussia, Johann Gottlieb Fichte would assert the supreme value of the German folk with its uniquely profound language and mentality. Such assertive nationalism implies a new canon of cultures, a new hierarchy, with German instead of Greek, or alongside Greek, in the position of supreme authority. But Herder is quite different. He, urge, he urges his fellow Germans to give up the cultural cringe that they adopt towards the French, and to appreciate the distinctive value of their own culture, which has its own right, but certainly not a unique right, to take its place among the nations of the earth. Nations understood as cultural not political entities. Appropriately, Herder's approach to, li to literature is always comparative. For example, he compares the opening of Genesis to the impassioned poetry of his own day, the Odes of Klopstock. But he also understands Genesis as myth. It consists of what he calls mythologische Nationalgesänge, mythological national songs. It contains a series of poems which early humanity composed to express their awe on sensing the presence of divinity in nature and also to explain the origins of the world and of themselves. Hence, Herder briefly suggests a comparison with the cosmogonies of the Greeks, the Arabs and, and, the, and the Iroquois. Apart from the Old Testament, however, Herder doesn't say much specifically about literature from outside Europe. Admittedly, until his old age, he dies in 1803, not much was available in Western translations. I think it should already have become clear from my narrative that uh, what non-European literature was translated was often a matter of chance. The choices were often odd 
and the translations are often made via an intermediate language. In his late brief at Sobeferdum der Humanität, published in the 1790s, Herder argues that Provencal literature derived its complicated verse forms from Arabic poetry, but he shows very little first-hand knowledge of Arabic literature, referring to well-known compendia and studies by Derbelow and William Jones. Now, William Jones is the presiding genius of my final part, which is called The Appeal of India. I won't say much about him because Michael Franklin will tell us about him later today. But Jones was above all a pioneer in mediating ancient Indian literature to Europe. Goethe called him the incomparable Jones. I want simply to mention one of his achievements. His relation of the Indian play by, by Kalidasa as, as Shakuntala or the Fatal Ring, published in 1789 to great acclaim. A German version of the play was published in Schiller's journal, Thalia, in 1791 by Georg Forster, himself a remarkable cosmopolitan figure. At the age of 18, Forster set out with his father on Captain James Cook's second voyage round the world and, and had written an account of it in English, A Voyage Round the World, which appeared in London in 1777. Forster was a professor of national history, uh, uh, natural history a writer on anthropology, a fellow of the Royal Society, a Freemason, and a revolutionary, who took part in setting up the short-lived Jacobin Republic at Mainz. The Republic eventually yielded to a siege, of which Goethe, who was among the besieging troops, wrote an account. But by that time, Forster, one of its representatives in Paris, had met a premature death at the age of 39. The play Shakuntala appealed to Forster's cosmopolitan humanism. It showed, as he wrote in his preface, that tender emotions can be found on the Ganges as well as on the Rhine, the Tiber or the Ilissus, and among brown-skinned people as well as white. His Shakuntala aroused the enthusiasm of Goethe and Herder, and Schubert began composing an opera based on it, which was never completed. The play's popularity illustrates the balance that the reception of an unfamiliar work must hold between, the, between retaining the strangeness of the text and familiarising it. We must domesticate the text, assimilate it to familiar models, otherwise it would be unintelligible, but we need also to appreciate it as a product of a different culture. Herder strikes this balance in the preface he wrote for the second edition of the play, after appreciating the charm, delicacy and pathos of Shakuntala, he examines it in the light of, Ar of Aristotle's poetics, rather he, as he had compared Shakespeare and Greek drama some 20 years earlier. He argues that Shakuntala had the essentials of drama, coherence, continuity, unity and interest, but defies Aristotle's requirement that the supernatural should not form a visible, a visible part of the action. Shakuntala instead shows the life of gods and humans as interwoven. That, however, merely underlines that it comes from a different world from the Greeks and must not be judged by their standards. 
I won't say any more about the Shakuntala, but um, having read it both in Fourth translation and in English, and the translation in the Oxford World's Classics, it is an, an altogether delightful play, and I strongly recommend reading it. Forster was too much a man of the Enlightenment to have any share in the mystical enthusiasm of India that soon afterwards arose among the early Romantics. Hoping to find in India a counterpart to classical mythology, Friedrich Schlegel famously said, we must seek in the Orient for the pinnacle of Romanticism. Novalis, no less famously, in his polemic De Christenheit oder Europa, Christendom or Europe, contrasted the icy Spitzbergen of reason with the glowing India of poetry. All three of the brothers Schlegel were concerned with India. The, the brother whom we never hear about, Karl, went out to India as an employee of the East India Company and died there at an early age. His loss may have helped to direct the attention of the two surviving brothers to India. August Wilhelm Schlegel took up Sanskrit studies relatively late in life and became one of the founders of Indology as an academic subject. The youngest brother, Friedrich, was for a time fervently interested by ancient Indian religion. He once suggested that, that as people go to Italy to study the remains of classical art, so they should go to India to study the remains of religion, which had vanished from the coldly practical modern Europe. He not only held the widespread view that the human race had originated in India, probably in Kashmir, but at the height of his enthusiasm, he maintained that all language, philosophy and religion had spread from India. In 1802, he moved to Paris and worked in the Bibliothèque Nationale, first on medieval European literatures, then on Persian and Sanskrit. He first learned Persian with the help of, of um, Antoine Léon de Chézy, then he learned Sanskrit. He took lessons in Sanskrit from two to five every afternoon from Alexander Hamilton, a Scotsman born in India. By late 1803, Schlegel was able to read texts in the original in both Persian and Sanskrit. Now for Schlegel, the religion, philosophy and literature of ancient India were closely linked. He was primarily interested in the religion insofar as he believed that he had found their traces of an ancient divine revelation. As his absorption in Indian religion was part of the process that led him from his early Spinozan pantheism to his formal reception into the Roman Catholic Church in 1808. <coughs> By the time he wrote his essay on the language and wisdom of the Indians, also 1808, his enthusiasm for India had waned. He praised the doctrine of reincarnation because it confirmed the immortality of the soul, <coughs> of the soul, but he thought that the original revelation had largely been misunderstood and had degenerated into various mistaken doctrines such as pantheism, to which he assimilated Buddhism, and supersti superstitious practices such as nature worship. To a large extent, the essay on the language and wisdom of the Indians can be read as Schlegel's relig religious autobiography, or 
as Goethe caustically put it, his campaign to present himself as the apostle of an antiquated doctrine, by which Goethe means Roman Catholicism. <laughs> Schlegel does, however, pay considerable attention to literature. He wanted to compa compose a, 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 Christomath, a, a Christomath or anthology of Indian literature, <coughs> but couldn't afford to have the original texts reproduced in their scripts. As a substitute, he appends to his essay about 100 pages of translations from ancient Indian texts. The opening of the Ramayana, extracts of the Bhagavad Gita and the laws of Manu, and the prose narrative of Shakuntala that appears in the, in the, in the, in the Mahabharata. In repairing these, he had the help of existing English translations by Charles Wilkins and William Jones. But he does deserve credit for doing so much to make Indian literature better known in Germany. Until the end of the 18th century, the great Indian epics were unknown in the West. The best-known work of ancient Indian literature was the collection of, of didactic fables known as the Panchatantra, which circulated in Western languages as the Fables of Pilpai. So until the 1780s, when William Jones founded the Asiatic Society of Bengal, Westerners were, were the position of readers who, in Greek literature, knew Aesop, but not Homer. I want now to end with an example of the creative reception of Indian literature. It is, of course, very tempting to move to Persia and talk about Goethe's West Ursula Divan and the, ori uh, the orientalizing poetry which it initiated, but I want to turn to a less familiar text, a text too which takes us back to 1827. Heinrich Heine's prose text, what I can hardly call the narrative, Ideen, das Buch Le Grand, Ideas, full stop, the book of Le Grand. Heine, as a student, attended the lectures on Sanskrit language and literature given by Franz Bopp at the University of Berlin. And he was clearly enthusiastic, as well he might be, about this newly revealed world of myth and epic. He often refers to Indian literature, assuming the readers will understand his allusions without explanation. For example, a poem in the, in the Buch der Lieder, his first um, collection, only makes sense if you already understand its reference to an episode in the, in the, in the Mahabharata. Heinrich's text, Ideen des Buch der Grand, is narrated by a persona who appears at times to be Heine and relates lightly fictionalized episodes from Heine's own life. At other times, he calls himself the Count of the Ganges. And the setting varies between Germany, Venice, and Delhi. The text is addressed to a lady who is simply called Madame and who bears some unexplained relation to a dead girl called little Veronica and to the Sultaness of Delhi who died 3,000 years earlier. At one point, the narrator, at one point, the narrator appears to come clean about his identity. And this is the passage on the handout, which I'll read out. <coughs> Madam, I've been lying to you. I am not the Count of the Ganges. I never saw the holy river in my life, nor the lotus flowers that are mirrored in its devout waves. 
I never lay dreaming under Indian palms. I never lay praying before the diamond god of Juggernaut, although he could have been a great help to me. Never, I was never in Calcutta, any more than the Calcutta chicken that I had for lunch yesterday. But I come from Hindustan. And that is why I feel so at ease in the vast poetic forests of, of, of Valmiki. The heroic sufferings of the divine Rama move my heart like a familiar pain. But from the flowery songs of Kalidasa spring forth my sweetest memories. And a few years ago, when a kind lady in Berlin showed me the pretty pictures her father had brought from India, where he was governor general for a long time, the delicately painted, quiet and devout faces seemed so well known, and I felt as though I were looking at my own ancestral portraits. Franz Bopp, Madam, you have of course read his Nalus and his The Conjugation System in Sanskrit, <laughs> gave me much information by my forebears, and I now know I sprang from the head of Brahma and not from his corns. I even suspect the entire Mahabharata, with its 200,000 lines, is merely an, an allegorical love letter sent by my first forefather to my first foremother. Now this passage needs some commentary. Heiner shows some knowledge not only of Kalidasa, whose play Shakuntala we've just heard about, but also of the two great epics, the Ramayana, with author authors said to be Valmiki, and the Mahabharata. Although Franz Bopp's um, um, book on the conjugation system in Sanskrit has a, has a rather dry title, it also included extracts from both. Heine has evidently read the story of Nala and Damayanti, a self-contained narrative within the Mahabharata, in the Latin translation by Bopp. That's what his Nalus is, is the story of Nala and Damayanti in Latin. For elsewhere, Heine um, alludes to sp a specific episode in this tale, the one in which four gods present themselves as suitors for Damayanti, each assuming the appearance of her destined husband Nala, but Damayanti is able to distinguish Nala from the gods by the fact that the gods never blink their eyes. However, and this is my final point, the Indian material in Idean das Buch Le Gros is not there simply to provide extraneous allusions. It also helps to give the text its structure. Not only does the narrator come, um, claim to come originally from India, but since little Veronica died on the day that Madame, the addressee, was born, it appears that Heine is using the concept of the transmigration of souls. Madame is a reincarnation of Veronica, and also, it would seem, of the Sultaness of Delhi, while the narrator himself led an early existence in ancient India. So Heine thus enters into a creative dialogue with the hitherto unknown cultural riches opened up by the new horizons of world literature. Thank you very well, much. Well, thank you, Richie. Can you, is, is it on? Thank you, Ri Richie, for that fantastic and very erudite paper. I feel that I'm at, at a complete disadvantage because I, first of all, I'm not familiar with his subject, and second, I don't have his erudition, and third, I'm a actually a very slow thinker. Um, 
it takes me a very long time to figure out how to respond to something that I read, read several times, and think about several times. And I want to sort of start by telling you a little bit about how I responded to the paper when I first read it about a month ago when I was going out to Taiwan, and the second time when I read it in my St. John's very nice room last night, and this morning when I heard his paper, right? When I first read it, right, forgetting about the frame of the conference and the frame of Matthew Muhammad Salah's project, let's say, right, I started by responding to the first quotation in the paper that is about Goethe's definition of word literature or his position towards word literature. And when I read through the paper, my first reaction is that, oh my God, I'm completely overwhelmed by the erudition of the paper. And second, oh my God, I don't see the familiar issues that are raised in word literature, comparative literature, or even post-colonial studies. So that was my initial response. The second response was last night when I arrived at Oxford and I started looking at the material that was given to me but I never had time to read and the title of the conference, Comparative Criticism, History and Methods. Then I realized um, I was possibly framing my interpretive frame very differently when I first read the paper and now that I know within which context I am going to respond to the paper, right, I think about the paper completely differently. Right? I say this because I want to be able to sort of put out there right away the complexities involved in the way we position ourselves as reader of literature and reader of text and the way we construct the perspective through which we conduct our writing analysis and research and how all this is defined but what we know and how we know, and more importantly, how it is also relevant to our style in our use of language and our style of engaging with contentious issues. For example, I'm very combative, combative. so I like to sort of be combative, be argumentative, and talk about sort of critical issues, but there are people who prefer not to be combative and not to do that. And I say this because I think I want to be able to think about the tensions and contradictory impulses that play in the dark or lurk beneath the surface of Rich's paper, right? And I think towards the end, the inward looking, right? Inward looking in terms of, of word literature in this sense and in his discussion of how literature or word, the idea of literature transform the politics of canonization within a particular area of European studies and how that also transformed the aesthetics of European literature, right? Versus the outward sort of impulse that I tend to take when I use literature to think about how we define the world and how we define literature differently as we encounter the world. Right, so I want to sort of like begin by sort of bringing out, teasing out the issues 
that I haven't heard about but are there anyway. And the first set of tensions is about the difference between comparative literature and word literature in terms of conceptualization and in terms of methods of analysis. And the other tension is between comparative literature, word literature, and post-colonial studies, right? And here, it seems to me, right, at least in my combative way of thinking about things, is that word literature is a way of trying to substitute for comparative literature, but at the same time, an attempt to neutralize or neuter the radical politics of post-colonial studies, right? What are the politics involved in cultural encounters? What are the politics that define the way we canonize a literary tradition, whether it's a national tradition or is a universal global award tradition? So that's one set of tensions and contradictory impulses. The other one, right, is the tension between disciplinary study, literary studies, comparative literature, and area studies, right? And these have an, a sort of an effect on how we conduct our method, whether it's a historical method or whether it's a theoretical method. So it seems like, you know, these two, right, come together. If you're theoretical, you are not grounded in the subject or in your area studies. If you're grounded in area studies or subject, you do not do theory very well, right? So that, that there's that kind of things. So I, I sort of want to sort of use that to think about sort of like the larger issues that this conference would bring out, and especially when begin to encounter different perspectives, different positions, and different locations, right? As we hear throughout the two days of the conference. So I stop here. And uh, give time to the second speaker. Um, this, is, this is very much going to be a half chapter to the history of world literature. The, t the 10 chapters that Richie provided, this is a little half chapter to the 10 and a half chapters. Uh, and I'd like to begin by thinking about the term comparative and the different uses of it. The canonical sense of the word is characterized by a certain kind of methodological practice as well as an implicit aim, referring to something like bringing together parallels while reading across cultures beyond one's own classical heritage in search of a universal cultural legacy that lays the foundation for a cosmopolitan and humane future. It might sound something like this as you saw in, 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 in the Imaginary Museum, the wonderful delineation of the Imaginary Museum. This is, a, this is a view widely accepted and even possibly widely practiced. At the same time, it sounds a subjunctive note. It suggests that comparative reading is a highly recommended act, an enriching, deepening, broadening exercise, but something that is essentially optional. To this model of comparison, I'll refer, which I'll refer to as the traditional comparative, I'd like to add another, and that is comparison not as a voluntary act driven by universalist and cosmopolitan principles, but as an involuntary act enforced, enforced by historical necessity. What I'm referring to is the comparative of the post-colonial. For the post-colonial, comparison is never a matter of choice. With a view to bringing out parallels across cultures, it is a burden thrust upon 
by the ascendant authority which has rend rendered traditional readings invalid. A succinct way of expressing this kind of comparison is Robert Young's concept of the post-colonial comparative, which is the first quote on the handout. He writes, post-colonial authors have always written comparative literature, a literature that did not have to wait for the frame of comparative literature to be in dialogue with other cultures. For post-colonial writers had no choice. That work was done by the violent historical imposition of colonialism, which forced post-colonial society and its literature into comparison in the first place. Post-colonial literature therefore cannot be, uh, cannot but be, cannot be anything but comparative, since it is written from the position of always already having been put in, put in comparison with other <coughs> literatures. Young's idea of the post-colonial comparative raises the issue of authority in com cultural comparisons and the problem with accounts that are insufficiently explicit about what or whose measure of comparison ensures the currency of its criteria, on what grounds and for what purpose. For when universal universalist ideas are discussed without a proper consideration of how certain norms operate as the global measure, cross-cultural comparisons have a knack of reinstating the primacy of European literature in the universal cultural heritage. A few years ago, the Japanese comparatist Tsukihiro Hirokawa protested, and this is a second quote, it is true that great scholars such as Curtis, Auerbach and Wellick wrote their monumental scholarly works in order to overcome nationalism. But to outsiders like me, Western comparative literature scholarship seemed to be an expression of a new form of nationalism, Western nationalism, if I may use such an expression. It seemed to me an exclusive club of Europeans and Americans. It was a sort of a greater West European co-prosperity sphere. This issue is encapsulated in the contradiction that is at the heart of the, the, the renewed uh, field of world literature today. For in theory, world literature is that which is universal. But in practice, the dominant texts found in world literature lists are mostly the texts of the dominant nations, Russia, the US, and the five major uh, European states, Britain, France, Germany, Spain, and Italy. This discrepancy reflects the profound conflict between, between the idea of world literature as that which transcends nationalist boundaries on universalist principles and the antithetical idea of it as a hyper-nationalist manifestation that aims to dominate the literary marketplace. <coughs> Given that the current idea of world literature arose in response to European historical events in the 19th century, even when Europe, Europe governs the world, it is perhaps inevitable that its methodology and, and boundaries reflect its provenance. But the equivalence of European literature and world literature cannot be explained merely by the accident of its place of birth. As a category of knowledge, world literature emerged simultaneously with and as a corollary of the rise of national literature, and its epistemological and ontological limits find their roots in its contradictory origins. As Marco Juven argued in his discussion of Goethe, which is number three on the handout, through launching and practicing his universalist notion of literature in the 1820s, Goethe pursued not only cosmopolitan ideals such as peaceful understanding amongst nations and the affirmation of general human, generally human values, but also aimed at 
more particular ends. He attempted to establish himself as an internationally renowned classical national author to advance Weimar as the cultural centre of, of politically fragmented Germany and to transform German literature, which appeared to lag behind Western metropolises, into an important global mediator of literary traffic. So on the one hand, while literature seems to take us beyond parochial boundaries to a unified republic of letters, while on the other promoting new nationalisms. <coughs> to this uneasy mix, East Asia brings another dimension for thinking about what it is that we do when we compare, complicating both the traditional comparative and the post-colonial comparative, <coughs> excuse me, and challenging the dynamics of the world literary map, which is heavily configured on the West and the rest, Europe and its others, centre and periphery models. For even with the significant intervention of post-colonialism, debates in world literature and comparative literature have primarily been limited to the colonial world and the post-colonial states of the Western powers. In other words, to areas where at least one European language is official. The non-Western colonial literary field of the Pan-Asian Empire, Imperial Japan, Colonial Korea, Semi-Colonial China, Manchuria, Taiwan and so on, are not so much relegated to the margins as just passed over. So what relevance or legitimacy can the literature of the Pan-Asian Empire have for discussions of world literature and comparative criticism? Given that this area is so little discussed, it seems necessary to say a few words on the history before addressing this question. And, and uh, incidentally, the Pan-Asian Empire is used synonymously with the Japanese Empire and also the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. So the Far East was the last major region of the world to be incorporated into the capitalist world system. And as late as the early 19th century, Japan was hardly better prepared than India or Africa to resist European expansion. Yet Japan succeeded in turning itself into a major industrial imperialist power within 40 years of being forced into an unequal trading treaty in 1854. By 1894, it had developed into the Pan-Asian Empire, becoming the only non-Western empire in, in the modern world and the first peripheral, to use Wallerstein's uh, term, peripheral region to, to launch a sustained and sometimes successful challenge to the West. It is commonplace to attribute this growth to the Meiji Restoration of 1868, which restored the emperor system to the Tokugawa, Tokugawa shogunate. Meiji made it possible for feudal Japan to achieve the remarkable feat of industrialising and modernising in super record time. This is the standard narrative in as much as it exists, which focuses on the exceptionalism of Japanese mod modernisation. And whether one accepts Meiji as the exemplary model of modernization or sees it as an anti-democratic, aristocrat-led, top-down restoration, the corpus of analysis of the Jap Japanese empire is broadly in agreement on one thing, its so-called surrogate nature. Surrogate in that Japan borrowed the system of empire building from the West and executed it in its place. I'm simplifying here. But one could say that Japan reformed itself into an empire by modelling itself on the West as a protection from the West with the aim of competing with and ultimately usurping the West. 
This required a restructuring of the feudal system into an industrial capitalist state, but more importantly for this discussion, it required a cultural reform of historic proportions. During the Meiji period, Japanese leaders sought to systematically acquire an understanding of the principles underlying Western civilization, not only in economic, political, legal arenas, but also in literary, academic, and even aesthetic fields. It seems to me that one of the most striking aspects of the scholarship during this period across Japan, Korea, and China is the attempt to reorganize all human life into a translated discourse, from a Sinocentric Chinese script-based system into a discourse translated from Western texts. The best example of this, and the clearest, is the changing conception of literature itself during Pan-Asian modernity. Before the advent of Western modernity, throughout the long history of literature in China and Sinocentric cultures like Korea and Japan, the term for literature, bunhak, and that's number five on the handout, so it's the same same characters, but uh, pronounced differently. It's Munag in Korean, Pungaku in Japanese, and uh, Wensu in, in Chinese. Um, it traditionally meant scholarship or erudition, or the study of the Confucian classics, which were extremely wide-ranging and mostly non-fiction. And the character Mun, or, or Bun, or Wen, indicated a much broader concept than literature as we understand it today, signifying man's moral relationship with the universe. Literary activity was not a specialised field, but was inseparable from the moral, political, cultural, social and personal. But with the advent of modernity, Western literature, particularly English and German literature, became the model to which former conceptions must adjust. And within this, the novel began to take on an unprecedented role. One only has to look at the proliferating journals of this period to find evidence of literature being rapidly reconstructed according to Western classifications of knowledge. And this was widely remarked upon at the time. Out of the many examples, I'll examine just three, and that's Subuchi Shoyo in Japan, Iwangsu in Korea, and Lushun in China. All three, regarded, all three are regarded as the founding fathers of modern literature in their native countries. All three began their literary careers as translators of Western literature, and all three systematically revised the classical literary tradition, expounding on the rules, the aims, types, and benefits of the novel with reference to European sources. In Shoyo's can canonical text, The Essence of the Novel, uh, and that's uh, number seven, one of the earliest and influential texts to advocate the Europeanization of literature, he states his, sta uh, he states his motive and intention. So I quote, if the novel really possesses such possibilities as these, then would it not be seriously remiss of us not to overhaul and improve our crude Japanese novels, to make them flawless, better than those in the West, to produce a great art form fit to be called the flower of our nation? To do it, we must work out a plan for writing the perfect novel by first understanding the reasons for, for past successes and failures, taking care not to make the same mistakes again, while seeking out and concentrating on the good points. Without a campaign of this nature, the oriental novel will probably always remain at the level of the old romance with no chance to develop. In exactly the same vein, albeit less explicitly, Lucian, the founding father of modern Chinese literature and regarded by many as China's greatest modern writer, puts the case for the Europeanization of Chinese fiction. In his classic, A Brief History of Chinese Fiction, the first account of the history of the Chinese novel, 
He traces back the word xiaoxiu, meaning small talk or inconsequential speeches, all the way back to Changsu's mention of it in the Warring State period in the 4th century BC. <coughs> and from Changsu to the 20th century, he pulls together a narrative history of a wide range of texts that go by the title xiaoxiu. And these are supernatural tales, miscellaneous notes, moral admonitions, philosophical speeches, historical narratives, legends, myths, prose romances, satire, political narratives, adventures, and in some cases, poetry. And though Lucian weaves the narrative as a continuous development, apart from the umbrella word show itself, it's not clear what links the diverse range of texts with the new novel, Xin Show that he concludes with. If there is a unifying idea, it is provided by Lucian himself, who retrospectively reconstitutes China's literary past according to the present conception of what the novel should be, that is, the new novel, based on the European form. As stated in his 1935 essay, Lay Discussions of Literature, that's this number, number eight, we used to call those records written difficult old characters when, but now those who follow the new are calling them Wenxiu, However, they're not referring to the use of Wensu in Book 11 of the Analects. They're referring to the translation of the English word literature imported from Japan. Similarly, the founding father of modern Korean literature uh, and new novelist Lee Gwangsu wrote in his landmark essay, What is Literature? In recent years, what is called Munhak, uh, literature, has come to mean literature as the word is used by Westerners. So it's correct to say that Munhak is a translation of the Western concept of literature Therefore, Munag expresses the meaning of the term literature in Western languages and not what it has traditionally represented. It is necessary to say here that Yi Guangsu, like Lucian and Shouyou, was not only a commentator on the transformation, but was himself heavily involved in the process and was a major advocate of it. So to conclude, modern literature in the Pan-Asian Empire was born out of comparison, but it wasn't the result of a direct imposition of history in the mould of a post-colonial comparative, but was a voluntary and systematic acquisition. Nor was the comparison aimed towards a humanist universal. It was driven by hyper-nationalist, competitive and even combative purposes. Based on those reasons, one could risk a theory that adaptation is a more fitting concept for this region, which is not to say that the traditional and the post-colonial aspects are not relevant to some degree. To end on an item of trivia, the discipline of comparative literature in Japan was born at the same time as the Tokyo Olympic Games. The two are not unrelated, though bringing out the parallels between the games and world literature would be the subject for another paper. Mm -hmm.